Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and this is actually part two of a multi-part series about the Jeffrey McDonald case and the murders of his wife, Colette, his daughter, Kimberly, and his young daughter, Kristen. You've got to listen to part one if you want to actually enjoy part two. With that being said, don't forget to check out my Facebook Storytime Slayer, YouTube Storytime Slayer, TikTok Storytime Slayer, and my Instagram is story underscore time underscore slayer. With that, let's just jump in. So Jeff and Colette were really more than just husband and wife. They'd been friends since the eighth grade. I mean, that means they practically grew up together. They started dating in the eighth grade, broke up in high school, and then reconnected during their college years. Colette became pregnant while the couple was still in college in 1963, and because it was 1963, they decided they needed to get married. So they get married in 64, Colette drops out of college, and Jeff continues his studies. He was completing his undergraduate at Princeton before applying to medical school. Their daughter, Kimberly, is born 1964. Jeff applies for Midwestern Medical School, and he actually gets in. During their third year there, the couple has their second child together, little Kristen, in 1967. In June of 1969, Jeff completes his medical internship and in July is inaugurated into the Army to be an Army physician. He's quickly assigned as a medical officer at Fort Bragg's Army base. So the McDonald's are moving to North Carolina where Jeff has been assigned for the next two years. A lot of exciting things are happening. I mean, think about it. The couple has had two children while Jeff was in college. Money was really tight. Times were really hard. They were not living a fabulous life of a doctor. However, this was the light at the end of the tunnel. Colette re-enrolled in some local college courses to complete her degree, and the couple found out that Colette was pregnant again with a baby boy. It was a really happy time for Colette, and Christmas of 1969, she sent out a joyous letter to her family sharing the excited news of the little boy to join their family. And of course, about Jeff's awesome job and all the exciting things. As for the type of people Jeff and Colette were, they were rather conservative and traditional. Everyone said they seemed to be very much in love have a very happy life, relationship. I mean, nothing seemed suspicious by all outside accounts. However, Jeff was not the amazing and loyal husband everybody thought he was. For one, throughout much of his relationship with Colette, Jeff had been maintaining an affair with his high school girlfriend. At first, the young woman did not know Jeff was seeing Colette again, but after she found out that he was in fact seeing Colette, the couple had gotten married and they had kids together, she maintained an on and off again affair. Jeff went as far as to lie to Colette about needing to go out of the country with his wrestling team, when in fact he was just going to meet up with his mistress who resided in New York. This was not Jeff's only indiscretion. He seemed to be a walking hard on when he was out of town. Several one night stands, several short affairs, just... If there was trouble in paradise, though, you really wouldn't have known it from Colette. It is said that she was so conservative and reserved, it's unlikely she would have told anybody if the marriage was rocky. Colette's mother said shortly before the murders, Colette had called and said she'd been thinking about visiting her parents with the kids. That's like the closest to Colette hinting there was problems she would really get. But her parents were in the middle of getting an in-ground pool installed at the time, 
And they thought with the big hole in the ground in the backyard, it would be better if Colette and the kids visited in the spring when the pool was finished. Now, of course, this is something Colette's mom later terribly regretted. So let's get to that Article 23 shit show. The thing about the Article 23 hearing is they are not open to the public. The defendant is allotted only one spectator and Jeff chooses his mom. So to help everyone really understand the circumstances, this court is not open to the media. It is not open to the public. No military personnel is allowed to comment on the proceedings. No one other than the people in that courtroom and Jeff's mom know anything that is going on, not even Colette's family and loved ones. I mean, that means the only narrative anyone is going to be getting, even in the media, is whatever narrative Jeff and his defense team put on and relay. So they can literally spin things however they want to. They don't have to tell you the real evidence. They can say there is no evidence. So as convincing of a case the military had against Jeff, it was very very circumstantial and the CID made a ton of errors like I'm gonna rattle some off for you buckle up one of the telephones Jeff used to call 911 had still been dangling from the hook and a military officer who I'm going to start referring to as MPs they picked it up and put it back on the dial without you know getting the evidence they needed off of it there had been a blue fiber found under Kristen's nail that the CID lost the skin sample from under Colette's nails had been lost as for the flower pot I mentioned in part one that was tipped over and then placed right side up, it was the ambulance driver who actually put the flower pot right side up because it was knocked over. And the ambulance driver also stole Jeff's wallet at the crime scene, which is so wild. Like that is the world's worst person. The pathologist forgot to get fingerprints and hair samples from the victims before embalming them. Jeff's pajama bottoms had been thrown away by the hospital personnel. Jeff's trash hadn't been collected before being taken to the waste site and incinerated as standard waste protocol. The bloody footprint in Kristen's room was destroyed when trying to remove it for evidence. The fingerprint tech took dozens and dozens of photographs of the fingerprints to later analyze, but over 50 of the pictures were blurry and completely unusable. And then when he returned to the apartment to retake the pictures, moisture had seeped into 40 of the taped off fingerprints, making them completely unidentifiable. So many of the CID and MPs touched the Esquire magazine before it being processed for evidence or noticing the blood smear on the top. And by time it was checked, the only fingerprints that could be lifted belonged to CID and MPs on the scene combing through evidence. Another major blunder was that the CID and MPs actually did have a strong circumstantial lead that I am going to dive in and tell you about shortly, but I'm just going to give you the overview. The woman's name was Helena. She was someone that had been on police's radars for years. She had dropped out of high school at like 16, became a heavy drug user, and was now a police street informant. Apparently, Helena was an exact match to the woman that Jeffrey McDonald said was in his home. She wore a blonde wig, a floppy hat, and tall white boots. Not only was Helena an exact match to one of the intruders Jeffrey McDonald described, but one of the MPs saw her in a raincoat, floppy white hat, white boots, blonde wig, a few blocks away from the McDonald's home in the rain about to cross the street on their route to the McDonald crime scene after his 911 call. Does that make sense? 
It's going to have to make sense. Just so we're all clear, the MPs did question Helena as to her whereabouts the nights of the murder, but she had no recollection of where she was or what she'd been doing because she was under the heavy influence of drugs that night. So we'll circle back to her. It's a tad bit confusing, but if I understand correctly, Jeff underwent four psychological evaluations prior to court. The first was a civilian psychologist that basically ruled Jeff was not capable of committing such atrocious acts. The defense asked if the former chief of psychology at Walter Reed Army Hospital would do an evaluation as well. And he said Jeff was impulsive, cared a lot about how people perceived him, but he did not find Jeff to have psychotic tendencies. So basically what I understand from all the exams Jeff underwent prior to this court hearing, he did care about his masculinity, outward appearance, achievements, and so forth, but he did not display any psychotic tendencies. So with all the errors in the investigation and Jeff being found sane and incapable of this really heinous act, it really strengthened his defense. There was also endless character witnesses, co-workers, friends of both Jeff and Colette, Jeff's family, and I mean most impactfully would be Colette's own parents taking the stand in Jeff's defense. Colette's dad even pledged $5,000 in reward money to find who actually murdered his girls. Now remember, no one is allowed in court to watch except Jeff's mom. So this means that the people testifying for Jeff They haven't heard any of this evidence. They don't get to hear anybody else's testimony. They don't get to know what's going on. They just got to stick to what they know and have heard in their version of events. Now, back to Helena. The strongest witness to Jeff's case was MP Kenneth Micah. Micah had testified for the prosecution about the events of February 17th. And he'd said he tried to tell the prosecutors he'd actually seen a woman wearing a floppy hat at an intersection that night while en route to the crime scene. And she matched the description that Jeffrey was giving of the female hippie at his home. He said that the prosecution told him it would only hurt their case and just flat out told him not to tell anybody. Just don't tell anybody, they said. But Micah thought that was wrong. So after testifying for the prosecution, he turned around and he told Jeff's defense team what he'd seen. And so, of course, they have him get up on the stand and testify as to seeing this woman matching the description Jeff had given of the female intruder that night. Then the defense hit another stroke of luck. Of course, a description of these wild acid loving hippies had been all over the media. But that was besides the point. A linen delivery worker approached Jeff's defense team during the trial and said he actually thinks he knows who the woman was that the police officers saw. He had a neighbor named Helena, and she was known to wear a blonde wig, floppy hat, and tall white boots sometimes. And she was a really strange person, okay? She's a heavy drug user for one, prone to lying, partially participated in witchcraft. But all that aside, he said the morning of February 17th, Helena had gotten home at about 4 a.m. He knows that because he'd woken up and looked out his bathroom window, and that's when he saw a car whip out of the driveway that had two to three men in it. Helena had just gotten out and was going inside to her house when the car sped off. He also said the day of the funerals, Helena wore all black, hung a funeral wreath on her door, and she never wore those boots or wigs again. So when the police had to answer about Helena's situation, they'd explained like, yes, we know the description matched Helena. We've known Helena for a long time, though, and she has a history of being unstable and is known to lie religiously. 
Plus, Helena had absolutely no recollection of what she'd done that night. And other than coincidentally fitting the profile of the woman Jeff says he saw, police can't find any evidence to corroborate that anybody else was in the McDonald home, let alone Helena specifically being there. So it just seemed like a really good coincidence for Jeff to them. Jeff actually takes a stand on his own, which is always risky, but his story was exactly the same as it was the night of the murders, except for he added that he did slightly move Colette's body because she was a little bit propped up against a chair in their room. And he does think that he probably washed his hands before he touched the phones out of habit. He's a medical professional. Jeff did, though, exaggerate his wounds. So he said that he'd been hit twice in the head and sustained several injuries to his arm and abdomen, when in reality, he only got hit once in the head that was visible. And he only had one laceration on his arm, one on his abdomen, and one on his rib cage. The military ultimately dismisses its case against him due to insufficient evidence. Jeff applied for an honorable discharge and it was granted. After the trial, Jeff went on a damn media campaign. He didn't pass up an interview and he even wrote to news and magazine outlets. He did photo shoots for articles. He even went on the Dick Cavett late night talk show. So Dick Cavett actually did an interview about the talk show appearance Jeff did And he said, for one, Jeff was movie star handsome. That's his words. And he said, Jeff spoke really relaxed, like he was really comfortable and at ease being on camera in front of the crowd. He even made jokes. So it was really strange to Dick that Jeff could talk about what happened the night his family was killed and maintain so composed and calm and then turn around and make a joke and ogle at the women in the audience. Like he just found it suspicious. Here, I'll just go ahead and play you a short clip of Jeff on the show. It's really, really quiet though. So listen up. My wife came home and we had a uh, before bedtime drink really and uh, watched the beginning of a late night talk show. Where are these investigators now who did the uh, original? Well, most of them have been transferred. It's it's the Army way of handling things. If someone really fouls up, you either give them a medal or you transfer them. Uh-huh. And, uh... Jeff's media campaign was, of course, to highlight his innocence, convince everyone four people came into his home and that the Army completely dropped the ball and that they need to be investigated for sloppy work. And those killers are still out there. But remember, (laughs) no one really knows the evidence against Jeff or the court proceedings, not even Colette's family. And why is that? Because Jeff won't give anybody a transcript of the Article 23 hearing. You need his permission to get a copy, and he ain't letting anybody peek behind the curtain, y'all. He ain't doing it. In the meantime, Jeff moved to Manhattan. He worked as an ER physician part-time and a part-time assistant to another physician. He'd been undergoing therapy until the end of 1971. um, And he said that's because he no longer wanted to focus on the past, but he was going to start rebuilding his life. And he does. Like, he moves to California. And he said himself that 1972 and 1973 were amazing years for him where he completely rebuilt his life. He became a successful doctor, beautiful girlfriends. Everything seemed to be looking up for him. And he was actually still looking for someone to write a story about him and his experience and his innocence. But for years, he wouldn't have any luck. 
In the meantime, Colette's family wasn't ready to move forward. Colette's father, Freddie, wanted the Article 23 hearing transcripts. Apparently, they lacked closure because, for one, their daughter and granddaughter's killers were either still on the loose or it was Jeff who did it. And two, Jeff would never sit down and tell Fred the events of February 17th. Fred only heard about bits and pieces through the media, which isn't fair. Jeff would sit down and talk to the media and go on talk shows, but he wouldn't face Colette's parents, claiming it was too painful. So Fred starts a mission of his own. He too is going to drum up media attention and fight for the case to be reinvestigated and reopened. Starting January of 1971, Fred had actually hand-delivered letters to all 500 U.S. senators pleading for a new investigation to be started looking for his daughter's killers and investigation into the Army's gross misconduct and mishandling of this case. As for the media, a lot of the outlets wanted Freddie to get the Article 23 hearing transcript, to which he couldn't because Jeff refused. And Freddie starts to become really angry with Jeff over this, but he's smart and he doesn't show his hand, meaning he doesn't say, hey, motherfucker, I know you did this. In an effort to cool Freddie down and get him off his trail, Jeff tells Fred, hey, I need to speak with you, but it can't be over the phone. So November of 1971, Jeff made a trip to go see Fred in person. And long story short, Jeff tells Fred that he and some of his Green Beret friends hunted down one of the four intruders, and it was one of the men, and they beat him to death. Colette's parents actually believed Jeff, but then Jeff returned a short time later with pictures of Colette and the girls that Colette's mother had requested. And it was just the two of them and they're sitting down talking and she asked Jeff about the guy that he'd supposedly killed. And Jeff was saying things about the man. He was saying that he is stupid and he doesn't know what he's doing and stuff like that. And then after Jeff left, Colette's mom got to thinking and she found it really strange that Jeff was talking about the man that he supposedly killed in present terms and not past terms. And she just couldn't understand why he would kill the only person who could help him find the other three intruders and clear his name. So after that, Colette's parents were pretty sad that Jeff probably did it. Christmas Eve that year, Jeff's mother dropped off a transcript of the Article 23 hearing to Colette's parents and said they could have the copy for one week and then Jeff was going to have to get it back to prepare for a lawsuit against the Army. This would be the first look anyone had at the evidence, court testimony, and Jeff's testimony outside of that courtroom. Fred and Mildred Reed and cry and read and cry and read and cry and Freddie found so many inconsistencies in Jeff's testimony that he began writing the army asking for his own copy of this transcript they eventually send one to him in February so Fred got another surprise in February the CID investigators paid him a visit February 11th in person to tell him that they were launching an internal investigation into the McDonald murders and wanted him to know firsthand from them, Jeff was still, in fact, a suspect. And at this point, Jeff is now a suspect in Fred's mind and in Colette's mom's mind as well. Jeff conducted two interviews with the CID. Same story, nothing new. But the third interview, he declined because he said his lawyer wouldn't let him talk to them. In the meantime, the CID really dig into Helena again as well. And I just want to let you know that Helena can kiss my ass this is why you don't do drugs. 
Helena was a habitual liar. She would lie for attention. So on one hand, Helena would say things to indicate that maybe she had been there that night. And when she goes by that place, she gets anxiety. People who knew her said that she'd made several cryptic confessions to have been involved in the murders or there the night of the murders. However, she would always make it seem like she was involved and then she would revoke it. She would take it back. She's a very sick individual. The CID decided to take her to dinner and collect a hair sample from her chair and a fingerprint from her glass without her knowledge, both of which they could not match to any evidence at the crime scene. Oh, and by the way, this entire time the military has preserved the crime scene. Okay, even though they finished the Article 23 hearing, they left it all taped off exactly how it was. Helena also left officers a note at the police department the day after she'd incriminated herself in the murders and said, despite all the odd things that she'd said back and forth into different people, she did not think she actually had been in or near the McDonald's home that night. Plus, when CID tracked down her roommate during the time of these murders, they maintained Helena did not get home at 4 a.m., like the neighbor testified in the Article 23 hearing. Helena didn't make it home until late into the afternoon on February 17th, according to her roommate. When police followed up with the neighbor that had testified in the Article 23 hearing, he admitted that he was lying. He didn't see Helena at 4 a.m. getting out of the car with two or three men. Thank goodness they reopened this investigation because after re-examining the evidence, some significant things stand out. For starters, Jeff said that he wore gloves to wash dishes, which he wore surgical gloves to wash dishes. That's weird. But his fingerprints were all over the dishes from February 17th that he washed. So he wasn't wearing gloves when he washed dishes. Second of all, Kim's urine was on Jeff's sheets and Jeff said it was Kristen who'd wet their bed. Remember, there were two knives at the crime scene. Both were paring knives. One was a Geneva brand. The blade was dull and it made really jagged cuts. And the other was an old Hickory brand. Its blade was sharp and smooth. The knife Jeff claimed to have pulled out of Colette's chest was found in the couple's bedroom was the Geneva knife. But that knife hadn't been the one used on Colette or the children. Also, a slat under one of the children's bed was cut from the exact same piece of wood the club was made from. This made it obvious that the club used in the murders did belong to the McDonald's, despite Jeff insisting it didn't. And the most talked about piece of evidence in this whole case is Jeffrey McDonald's pajama top. Jeff always maintained his top had been ripped by the intruders in the living room. And then when he came out of his blackout and it was wrapped around his wrists, he unwrapped it and he laid it over Colette when he found her murdered. Well, when investigators pieced together this top, it had bloodstains belonging to Colette that were on the shirt before it had been ripped. How was that possible if Jeff hadn't gone near Colette's body until after his shirt was ripped? Okay, so the pajama top also consisted of 48 stab marks, but the stabs were not rough like they'd happened during a struggle or someone moving trying to free themselves. They were smooth, like the shirt had been laid flat and then stabbed. Plus, the marks were made on the backside of Jeffrey's shirt, and uh, Jeff hadn't been tried to be stabbed in the back. He had no, no injuries on his back. There was also things about the murder that didn't make sense if you visited the house after dark, which Freddie and the CID investigators did. I'll just give you the highlights. 
So Jeff said he went to Ken's room to check her vitals and perform mouth to mouth without turning on the lights. In the Article 23 hearing, Jeff said he tried to perform mouth to mouth, but air was escaping the girl's chest. Okay, y'all, it's way too dark in Ken's room to see her injuries, check her vitals, or perform mouth to mouth. Plus, if you entered Kim's room after removing his PJ top, how did specks of her blood get on the top as well? And Kristen's room was even darker than Kim's without the lights on. So there was no way he was able to check on either of these children without flipping the light switches like Jeff maintained he did. Jeff also said that between his first and second 911 call, he went and looked out the back door, went to the hall bath, checked his wounds, washed his hands, looked for medical supplies in the hall closet, checked Colette, tried mouth to mouth on the entire family, went into the kitchen, washed his hands again, and then called 911 for the second time. Fred tried this over and over. He said even running as fast as he could, it is impossible to do all those things in two minutes especially without a damn light on in the children's bedrooms. So June 1972, the CID concludes their investigation and gives the Justice Department a 3,000-page report. The Justice Department initially rejects it as not being strong enough case to justify what it would cost to go to trial. But Freddie did not give up. He took a page out of Jeff's book and he began a media campaign. Two years and two million letters later, July of 1974, the Justice Department actually agreed to a grand jury hearing in North Carolina, and that's where they decided if the state really has a case or not. It began August of 1974 and lasted five months. It really surprised me to read that Jeff did not stay for the entirety of the trial. In fact, he just flew in from L.A. for five days of his testimony. In January of 95, the hearing ended, and I'm just going to give you some highlights. Fred pointed out the inconsistencies in what Jeff was saying and the crime scene on the stand. Several people testified that the McDonald's did, in fact, have an ice pick. The FBI chief of chemistry explained how the blood splatter, blue fibers, pajama top, and kids' urine, along with other evidence at the scene, did not corroborate with Jeff's version of events. All the psychologists testified and three of the four said, although they had said originally they for sure thought Jeff was not capable during his initial evaluations, they couldn't say for sure that he was no longer capable. Their opinions had been slightly swayed by his demeanor and character traits that he may in fact be capable of such a heinous crime. The fourth psychologist said, though, that he could definitely change his opinion from unlikely to very likely Jeff was capable of committing these crimes. He said if Jeff's Achilles heel had been injured, and um, that's a person's masculinity, basically, in layman terms, that with the combination of lack of sleep and stress, he very much believed Jeff would have been capable of such a crime. Now, when Jeff was confronted on the stand and asked to answer any of the inconsistencies in the evidence, he had no answer and he was very combative kind of guy. So, for example, he had no idea how it was Kim's pee and not Kristen's. He had no clue how his pajama fibers got all over the house or how Colette's blood got on his pajamas before it was torn, so on and so forth. So Jeff is ultimately indicted for three charges of murder in January of 1975, and he is arrested. But within one hour, he's freed on a $100,000 bail that his friends and colleagues posted for him. 
So Jeff just flies home to California and picks up right where he left off. He's still working. He's got his condo. He's got his car. And his court date is potentially set for August of 1976. However, the fourth court of appeals ruled the indictment to be dismissed because it infringed on Jeff's right to a speedy trial. Jeff was so relieved, but that relief didn't last long. The Supreme Court reinstated the grand jury's indictment in May of 1978. And then McDonald's legal team filed an appeal based on the grounds of double jeopardy due to the Article 23 hearing. The Supreme Court rejected this argument in March of 1979. So they were finally going to trial, guys. Nine years had passed and Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen would finally get their day in court. So with that, I'm going to conclude part two of the Jeffrey McDonald story. Tune in to part three to hear about the next trial and where this case goes. There's a book, careers are ruined. It's crazy. Don't forget that you can subscribe to Storytime Slayer podcast and I will drop all the episodes for you to binge listen to immediately. Otherwise, tune in next week for part three of the Jeffrey McDonald case. Bye.